This week's episode of the Getting to Know podcast is brought to you by Nina Flex. Nina Flex is designed to help our salaried employees balance their personal and professional lives. We encourage employees to have a conversation with their manager about what flexibility means to them, given their specific roles and responsibilities. For more information about Nina Flex, please visit Connect. Hey everybody, it's Mike Brickheim. Thanks for joining us again today for another iteration of the Getting to Know podcast. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by our new VP of Innovation, Mr. Brett Halden, taking time out of his schedule to spend with us to help us understand a little bit more about him and what we're doing from an innovation standpoint. So Brett, thanks for joining us today on the Getting to Know podcast. Great to be here. So recognizing there's you know, always a little bit of a delay between the time that we record these and these go live. You've now been here coming up on six months. So what are the early observations as the newly minted, newly created VP of innovation for Nina? I think there's two early observations. The first one is the sheer I'll call it positivity of the people. I call it the Nina glow, where, you know, you have such genuine enthusiasm across the company. I've yet to meet somebody in this company that uh, isn't just, you know, excited to be here and is willing to contribute, wants to contribute and wants to to really take a next step. So I think the second big thing is is just the the amount of opportunity. I mean, the company really stands at... uh, a crossroads here as we, we look to build out our, our portfolio and we look to expand in the markets that we want to target. And I think there's a lot to be excited about. So those are two big things right up front um, that I would see. So the opportunity is similar to what you expected coming in, is bigger, is not as great? I actually think it's bigger. I mean, the, the diversity of where we play, you know, as I've certainly dug in and reflect a bit on some of my past experiences, I mean, in some ways, the company reminds me of a version of 3M, you know, decades ago as it was growing and it was um, expanding. So I think that uh, similarly, I think that there's a greater opportunity and breadth of markets than I would have thought. We've got roots in more markets than I, I saw at first pass. And uh, like I said, I think there's more opportunity and a greater chance to grow than I, than I would have thought. So you mentioned 3M. We'll, we'll dig into your background a little bit here shortly. But uh, before we go there, what was it that attracted you most and what got you to leave Northeast Ohio to head south and jump in here with Nina? Personal and professional. I think on the professional side, you know, again, I saw similarities to some of the opportunity and and some of the challenges that existed for growth at 3M, as well as in my last position at a company called Brandpack. And uh, again, the ability to kind of add value by by upping our game and innovation. So that was something, again, I, I saw coming into it. And then on the personal side, the plan was to to move a little bit further south. My wife and I like it down here. We like the climate, like the the vibe, the whole thing. So that was part of the plan to to get further south. So getting further south does not equate to where you grew up, though, right? You're uh, an upstate New York guy, is that right? That's right. So Saratoga Springs, New York. So home of the oldest. I think thoroughbred track in the nation. But anyway, so yeah, grew, born and raised in Saratoga Springs, New York, and uh, left there after college. I mean, I was, I went to school at Retzler Polytechnic Institute down there near Albany in Troy, New York. And from there, went to join the Navy. I was an ROTC guy and spent five years in the Navy. I was in various spots, got to see some more of the East Coast down in Virginia Beach and 
some of the West Coast place right in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley called Lemoore, California, which is the West Coast F-18 base. And then from there, met my wife and, and moved to the Midwest. So I've uh, been all over the U.S., but certainly uh, coming from the Midwest, we wanted to get further south. So after a couple of years in the Navy, was there ever a consideration that that would be a, a career path for you or that was going to be five years and out? You know, it's funny. It's I really enjoyed what I did. I worked in a, a very small community in the in the Navy, uh, Naval Intelligence at the time. There's maybe 1,200 people in that entire community in the U.S. Navy. So it's kind of a specialized area. I really enjoyed what I did there, but you know, I just I never you know woke up one day and said I'm going to make this a career kind of thing. After five years, there's some decision points you need you need to be thinking about as an officer, and and that's typically when sort of that three to five year point, that's when junior officers leave the military. And beyond that, you can start to incur some additional commitments kind of thing. And it's 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 a natural point if you're going to make a decision to do that, to kind of go ahead and, and close that chapter. So you know, I also saw a lot of opportunity in the civilian side to, to grow a little bit faster than you can in the Navy and, and some things. So I, I don't regret the experience at all, but it was, yeah, it was a decision I made just to, to go and pursue opportunities that I think could develop faster and, and frankly be a little bit more broad than some of the things that I saw in the Navy. Are there elements of your experiences or uh, things that you took from your Navy experience that you've carried with you into your civilian career? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I had a real good uh, experience with a with a with uh, one of my bosses at the time when I was in the Navy. Um, I think that one of the misconceptions is that the military can be very hierarchical. And in fact, the conditions I worked on on the ship and the leadership structure was actually quite matrixed. But um, this particular leader, he really taught me the value of leading teams through empowerment. So identifying challenges and then making sure that you, you trust and empower the people that are working for you to, to go ahead and get the job done. So, you know, make sure they've got the tools that they need and, and upfront, make sure that, you know, you trust them. And, and if you don't, then identify that and, and have the discussion with the individual. So those are, those are, I guess, just a couple points up front that, that came out of the Navy. So you leave the Navy, talk to us about kind of the Cliff Notes version of how you get from that point to where you are today, career-wise. Yeah, I mean, it's, Navy exposed me to innovation and, and what technology can do to, to bring value. And then I worked a bit for Booz Allen as a, as a consultant and along the way also picked up my MBA. And you know, just all of that coming together to think about how innovation can continue to create value. Um, and it always just really fascinated me the you know, again, the, the value that technology can bring, but also, you know, having a business sense and, and understanding, uh, you know, how you can use that to create real measurable uh, quantitative value and, and dollars and profits. So 3M was a natural fit in terms of combining all that and gave me a, a it was just a huge playground. And at the time, uh, sort of been in the 2004 timeframe, 3M was really going through some changes. A lot of the the technology benchmarking that they had done and, and the world-class leadership that they've had in that space was being recognized on the business and marketing side within 3M. So, I mean, there was a, there was a tangible effort to really try and up their game on the business and marketing side to sort of make their capability on the business side as good as it was on the technical side. So they were doing some different things with recruiting. They were doing some different things with how they thought about uh, business case development and, and sort of integrating those functions. And all of that was just great. I, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. So that's what that brought me to their doorstep. And then from there, it just kind of continued to unfold. At the risk of forcing people into boxes, which is not 
one of my favorite things to do. But just I'm, I'm curious here. So if you talk to Greg Weitzel, not to say Greg Weitzel can't do a, any other thing, but Greg Weitzel's a finance guy and Greg Burdick's a sales guy and, you know, Jason Krzyzewski and Brian Houghton, they're ops guys. How would you classify yourself if you had to say this was this has been my quote major from an employment standpoint through the years? It's been on the business side and the strategy development side. Having said that, I've always been super, you know, fascinated by technology and again what it can bring to the table. So um, I guess I've just always maintained a lot of personal curiosity about stuff outside of business and, uh, you know, not being afraid to, to dig into the details and, and get comfortable with those. So that's sort of, I guess, how I would classify myself. I, like I said, but just a lot of interests and uh, a lot of stuff that I, I stay curious about. So let's go back to what you referred to as the Nina Glow. Tell me more about that. You, you referred to that as kind of this general sense of optimism that, that exists across the organization. But talk to me a little bit more about your experience there. Yeah, I mean, it's across functions it's, and it's across geographies. The, the people that I meet, the people that I talk to, they themselves are, are curious to want to, to do better, right, and, and improve on what they do today. And they're eager to understand, certainly from an innovation perspective, they're eager to understand our plans for that. And, you know, they recognize that Nina as a company can do better and, and should be doing better kind of thing. And that's huge. That's a, that's a huge step to take. In my mind, already puts us on a real good footing to do some of the things that we want to do going forward here. So just a, a genuine positive outlook and a real positive culture of wanting to do what's right and wanting to help out. I've experienced the same thing from the standpoint of there's not this automatic organ rejection or this this desire to have had something, you know, authored or created here, which is which is a great thing. As you've gotten deeper into the R and D organization, what would you say their greatest, you know, frustration or challenge would be? Uh, I think the greatest challenge is we have a lot of pockets of good work that have occurred and, and sort of best practices. And I think that again, across geographies in particular and across business units, one of the opportunity, big opportunities I see is just better, more efficient, more frequent communication on what challenges maybe a particular group faces, right? So a challenge that's faced in filtration, a challenge that's faced in DTP. I mean, how, how can we bring to bear some of the expertise that maybe knows about that, has had experience about that in the past or with that in the past, maybe even done some work in that area, but doesn't happen to live in that particular business unit or in that particular country. So that's an opportunity I see quite a bit that, that I think we could really up our game with. And I think that that's something that they've talked to me about as well. We hear a lot about a lack of kind of consistent or repeatable processes. Why is that so important as it relates to innovation, especially when you're talking about businesses that are admittedly more different in in some places than what I expected when I was coming in. What about that consistency do you see from a process standpoint helping drive the innovation funnel the way that that, that you're looking to do? Well I think Mike innovation is a is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think it can be a frankly I think it can be a, a pretty ambiguous topic. A lot of people have just seen different pieces of it. They've been in businesses that maybe go a certain direction with it. The common process piece to me represents low-hanging fruit. I mean, when you're when you're thinking about how you want to take that next step in improving innovation, you want to look wherever you can uh, and, and and certainly start with with things that may have the biggest bang for the buck and and again could potentially be 
some of the quickest and relatively speaking easiest things to do. And again, we have this big topic that has a lot of different pieces to it around innovation. You want to start with stuff that could that offer value quickly and, and again, provide a lot of bang for the buck. So a common process and a common language is going to help us understand a lot about our priorities. It's going to help us understand a lot about how we manage our risk in the product development life cycle. And I do think it's going to make that communication we kind of touched on earlier be a lot easier across businesses and, and across countries. So all that I, I expect to play out in the quality of the pipeline that we have and, and see that improve. And also, of course, you know, the new product sales that we want to see coming from this that play a, a greater role in how we grow overall. So I guess that's one perspective on, on the value of that. If you had a magic wand, Brett, and could change one thing that you, you've seen so far, what would that be? I think one of the biggest challenges as a company we face is cross-business cross, you know, inter-country communication kind of thing. I think those two angles to it are, um, I think, are, are really a, a place where we could we could up our game. And, and I think it's not even necessarily just within innovation and, and say, within the, the R&D guys or the, the R&D area of the company. Um, I think it's, it's across a lot of functions at the company where we could, you know, if we can make ourselves more efficient in how we communicate across geographic and across functional boundaries, I think we're really going to be taking some strides to to up our game as a company and, and look forward. So that, I mentioned it before, but that's one that, that comes to mind with the magic wand. So to switch gears a bit, let's talk more on a, on a personal level. Help the getting to know podcast audience, get to know you a little bit, what makes you tick, kind of where you've been. And speaking of where you've been, it's the first concert you ever attended. The first concert I ever attended was, it was The Fix, and a flock of seagulls opened for them. I don't know The Fix. I definitely know a flock of seagulls. Now, were you rocking a flock of seagulls hairdo at that point? No, nothing that crazy. Nothing, uh, nothing that crazy. Probably crazy by today's standards, but certainly I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to copy uh, any of those guys with, with how they looked. Do I know the fix? I just don't know that I know the fix. Like I, I would know some tunes. Saved by Zero. Oh yeah, for yeah, okay. That's that's gotcha. them. That's the big. That's one of their big ones. Okay. The album I think was Reach the Beach from the Fix, but uh, that was in the concert was in the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, SPAC, which still does the. It's an amphitheater. Uh, still does that kind of stuff. Gotcha. It's the best concert you've ever been to. I saw you two in the Carrier Dome in, I think it was the Unforgettable Fire Tour. Really dating myself here, but anyways, uh, so yeah. I mean, I I haven't gone to a lot of concerts recently, but that was great. I was with my brother, we had a couple friends, that kind of thing. He was he went to Syracuse, so this would have been ages ago, but that was a, that was a fantastic concert. I think my wife's answer would be YouTube, but I think it was Joshua Tree, if I'm not mistaken, a little, little before that. If we grabbed your phone right now and saw the tune that you most recently played, what would it be? Um, I don't listen to a lot of pop stuff. Um, I spent a lot of time studying music and the stuff I listen to, it's, this is going to be, it's a guy named Warren Hayes. He was a guitarist for the Greg Allman band and he did a remake of Peter Frampton's Do You Feel Like We Do kind of thing. And, and it's fantastic. He slowed it way down everything else. And I think I was just yesterday uh, listening to that kind of thing. So that was uh, something I came across actually fairly recently that I think he's done a great job with it. So the most recent song, I think that's probably it. What would surprise people 
most about you? I think the music piece. That, that gets a lot of people like, what, really? I've played bass for almost 35 years, and that's been a, a great way to just blow off steam and play. I mean, I started playing classical bass and acoustic bass back in high school, and I, I never really gave it up. What happened was when I went to college, it just got more practical to to go with an electric bass instead of carting around an acoustic double bass. So I just played it through college. And then when I went to business school, actually did, we did a couple <laughs> with like a, a group of friends and we did a, a couple gigs, nothing, uh, nothing super professional, but definitely had fun with a couple gigs in and around Philadelphia. And then we did a, I was part of the band for the Warden Follies, which is a big musical number and dance number that's uh, done every year with skits and everything and, and actually supported by a jazz band. And, and that was a lot of fun. So good stuff there. What were the names of your various bands? I'm not at liberty to say, probably. Probably inappropriate, college types <laughs> of names. Yeah, fair enough. Now, you'll probably tell me that I know more bass players than I think I do, but off the top of my head, I know Michael Anthony from Van Halen fame, and I know Stefan Lassard from Dave Matthews Band. Who would be your favorite bass player, and who should I know that I don't know? The guy that really inspired me is Getty Lee from Rush. I mean, he's, he's super technical, a lot of technique, and it just really was interesting to me what he could do with the bass line, and, and he's influenced a ton of bassists uh, in general throughout the world. So I play a lot of Rush, and uh, it's not something, you know, there'll be a time, maybe a month, month and a half goes by where I don't have a chance to, to play, and you can't pick up the bass and just dig right into Tom Sawyer. You have to kind of warm up to it, like, for an hour or so, and then go into that. So it's... I just always was fascinated by how what he can do with a bass line. Is it me or are Rush fans as hardcore a fan as there comes? In in what seems like anything, like you know, whether it's football, baseball, whatever you're into, music, Rush fans seem really hardcore. It's a cult thing. I mean, it's you know, they never really they kind of occupied this part of the musical spectrum that was some people call progressive rock. Some people, I mean, they were inspired by Zeppelin in the late 60s. So they came kind of from the metal hard rock side. But the fans that follow them, I think, are kind of a mix of some folks are really into music. It's it's not a lot of that stuff. You can't really dance to it. Right. It's more Neil Peart wrote a lot of lyrics that are very, very, you know, there's some deeper stuff in there. So I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a really interesting mix. So you're settled now in the greater Atlanta area. What do you and Suzanne do for fun? Uh, we love the outdoors. We love fitness. We really stay active quite a bit, whether that's through hiking or she likes to run quite a bit. Um, I like to hike and, and do some things in the gym. And uh, we both love to cook. So cooking has been a, a big thing for us, especially over the last eight to 10 years. So that's something we really enjoy. And with COVID kind of lifting now more, we're looking to try and start to travel a little bit more than, than what we have in the last, say, year or so. So we'll see how that goes. But those are some things we really like. So you mentioned hiking for both of you. Would you, are you, are you more beach or mountains or combination? Oh, mountains, uh, mountains. So, so definitely, especially down here in, in, in North Georgia, I mean, there's, there's so much that you have access to. I mean, from our place, we have, we have access to, um, stuff that's, you know, the Southern terminus to the Appalachian trails an hour North of here. And, and we haven't done huge pieces of that, but there's all the trails around there and all the places in North Georgia that, uh, are just, there's a lot of varied terrain and, but very much on the mountainside. Gotcha. So from a cooking standpoint, like the perfect night, what is it that you or Suzanne made? Or are you going out? 
That's a great question, actually, because usually we, it's a toss up. We could go either way. Usually we would stay in, although around here there's just so much to see and do in terms of restaurants and stuff that I would say that that's we're going out way more here because it's just so accessible, you know, than we did up in, uh, in Ohio. So, you know, if we're cooking at home, it could be a surf and turf kind of thing on the grill where we're doing some fillets and some shrimp kind of thing and great side with that and some good wine. And that's that's good times. More wine than beer or liquor? More wine uh, in this day. I, I have really phased out <laughs> beer. Uh, not so much on the beer now. It's not that I don't like the taste, but I just uh, I really started to appreciate wine more, mainly because of my wife. Yeah, gotcha. So I'm going to ask you a couple different perfect day scenarios. The first one is going to be work-related. So what does the perfect day look like today as you're building out what it is that we're doing from an innovation standpoint, not yet to the the end point or the destination, but in route to that, what would the perfect day look like? Two parts to that perfect day right now. The, the first part would be, as you said, looking at the picture right now, it's really tracking on and making sure we're responding as efficiently and as quickly as we can to a lot of the material shortage challenges that we've got, Mike, across the across the businesses. So the team has really, really been working hard to stay on top of that and to address those and, and integrate, continue to integrate as seamlessly as we can with procurement and, and with the mills to make sure that that's going. So that's just the reality of, of what we have going on today and checking in and, and having those discussions and, and seeing that things are progressing. The second part of that perfect day is, is looking at the plan that we've got for the improvements to innovation, the changes to innovation, and looking across those various categories. And you know, again, making sure that the team is aligned on those plan, the items in that plan, and is stepping forward and continuing to execute on those. So we're just starting that now, but it's the housekeeping that's involved with, with executing what we've put in place. So there's some very near-term challenges, as I said, on the shortage stuff, but um, it's just the reality of what we deal with right now. And and then that that piece around more to what you asked about, you know, the path that we've got to build out and just making sure people are staying on task and executing against the some of the you know the key items that we've outlined here. So, you know, I also enjoy my team is remote, not necessarily bumping into them in the hall, but I enjoy the the interaction that I've got with them and, and being able to make sure that I'm addressing the challenges that they've got and if it's outside of those two categories, what what can I do to help? And just hearing about how things are going. Those are two big buckets. And then, uh, you know, again, any uh, ad hoc meetings that are coming up as it relates to the team and, and the challenges that they're facing if something came up. That's a lot of what's what's happening now. And it's if we're executing on those things, I think we're doing pretty good. I'm going to stay with the perfect day theme. So you're executing on all those things. Now we're at the, let's just call it for craps and giggles, the point of arrival. So you've got access to the materials you need. You've got the org design that you want. You've got the talent and capabilities built out the way that you need it. Process is all laid out, clear, consistent, well understood. Things are humming along. What's a perfect day look like at the point of arrival? Now it's checking in on that day to see what the pipeline looks like, what, what's the level of uh, sales we've got in the pipeline and how that may have changed. Uh, now it's understanding, again, any key risks that we've got as we look at some of the, if we're at the point of arrival and we're at that point, we're going to be looking at projects that have greater opportunity, but also have greater risk with them. So making sure everybody on the team is aware of, of the level of those risks cross-functionally, tracking on how our new product sales look versus 
we can do some of this now, but looking year to date versus where we need to be for the for the full year. And uh, yeah, and then looking, frankly, a large portion of my time now is looking inwards at a lot of uh, what we just what you just talked about the process and our own tracking. But also at the point of arrival, I'm going to have more time to be looking outside and thinking about things outside of Nina a little bit more specifically and a little in a little bit more dedicated way than I can right now. So what new technologies, what new relationships, what new partnerships may make sense, may not make sense as it relates to to boosting and accelerating our innovation efforts. So. That's another big chunk of. I just don't have the the time right now to be to be looking at that stuff. But that's that's something that would, that would definitely uh, come into the picture at the point of arrival. All right, one more perfect world, perfect day kind of theme. So we're there at the point of arrival from a business standpoint. But it's now a weekend. And you're heading off on a long vacation with Suzanne. Where, what's the perfect day look like there, and where are you? Well, it depends on who you ask. She's. We probably, for her, I would I would side more towards we're headed to the airport and to Italy. And uh, we're going to go, I might be able to sneak in like, okay, we could go maybe hike in some of the foothills of the Alps if we stay on the northern side of it, that kind of thing, and then go to the beach. I mean, that sh- that would be something, uh, that, that'd be pretty perfect kind of thing. I'd be happy with, we're going to go do... Uh, you know, 50 miles on the trail, of, you know, and, and a couple section hikes on the Appalachian and make it up through into North Carolina, something like that. So either travel, and I'd be, I'm fine with that, or uh, outdoors and spending some time on the trail. Ideally both. Gotcha. Well, Brett, at the end of every Getting to Know podcast, we ask our guests three specific questions. I'm going to hit you with those right now. The first of which is what can at all times no matter what time of year, what time of day, be found in your refrigerator at home? Bottled water. I prefer sparkling stuff, so um, with gas for our global audience. My wife is more still and and, uh, actually a huge Fiji fan, so bottled water is always in there. Is there a specific brand of the with gas or sparkling water? Usually it's the St. Croix, actually. It's just the plain Jane blue can stuff. Gotcha. Amongst those who know you well, Brett, what would you say you're most famous for? I would say it's either going to be the music or, or cooking. Probably music a little bit more, only because I've been doing that a lot longer. Cooking, I didn't really get into in, until about 10 years ago, so maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So probably the music and, and just a, a passion for music and, and the stuff we play. So it's the same thing that would surprise a lot of people, but once they get to know you, it's the music. Yep. Yep, I follow. All right, last question for you, Brett. What are you most looking forward to right this very moment? I am looking forward to seeing this innovation plan unfold. We just laid out the pieces to this thing. And and when you tackle opportunities like this, there's all kinds of different directions you can go. And I think we've got a real solid foundation of and a bottoms up view of, of what some of our key challenges are. And I think that matches well with some of my own observations. And, and now it's let's go ahead and, and execute. And I'm excited to, to see this thing continue to move forward and, and to continue to progress. So as I mentioned earlier, I think the enthusiasm and the support has been terrific. So seeing that all come together, I'm, I am. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how that goes. I am as well. It's a huge part of the blueprint for how we drive our strategy into action. So it's, you know, it's, it's an exciting thing. It's a it's a potential game changer for us as, as an organization. So look, we appreciate you leading those efforts for us, Brett. We appreciate you taking time out of your 
busy schedule in leading those efforts to join us on the Getting to Know podcast. It's been great to get to know you a little bit more, talk a little bit more about what your plan is for innovation for the future. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. You bet. For those of you in the listening audience, thanks for your time as well. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Brett a little bit, and we will talk to you again in two more weeks. Mm -hmm.